0: Hi, this is Ellie Kushner from Dance Well Podcast, and today I'm speaking again with Dr. Elizabeth Moray, PhD. Um, She's a clinical psychologist who studied ballet while growing up in California, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. She began teaching and working as an administrator for the Boston Ballet in 1995 while pursuing her undergraduate education at Boston University. During this time, Elizabeth's interests in the psychological development and mental health of pre-professional dancers took root. She played a central role in the creation, implementation, and evaluation of the Wellness Initiative at Boston Ballet Center for Dance Education. After receiving her BS in psychology, she went on to receive a master's in counseling from Boston College and her doctorate in counseling psychology from the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Morey's clinical work and research has focused upon women's health, And she has a specific interest in working with women and those at risk of developing eating disorders, including elite dancers, which is why we are speaking to her today about that very topic, eating disorders. Dr. Moray currently serves as Chief of the Department of Behavioral Health at Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, Chestnut Chestnut Hill. And her other current roles include Chief of Behavioral Health subspecialties, including eating disorders for Harvard Vanguard. She also directs the Postdoctoral Fellowship in Behavioral Health, a collaboration with the Harvard School of of Population Medicine. Dr. Moray is a passionate advocate of women's mental, physical, and reproductive health, and is grateful to have the chance to integrate her earlier passion for dance into her clinical and consulting practices. So today, um, Dr. Moray, My old friend, Elizabeth, is talking to us from the road. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this, Elizabeth. I know this is a topic you're passionate about, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say about eating disorders.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about this.
0: Um, So can you just start by giving us um, the scope of what constitutes an eating disorder? Um, What are the various diagnoses that are out there uh, at this time?
1: Well, one of the things that I like to um, talk about when I talk about the scope of eating disorders is that um, eating disorders, to some extent, exist on one end of a continuum. And so if you imagine that you have kind of healthy eating on one end of that continuum, um, eating disorders fall on the far end um, in terms of really if you think about the the least healthy relationship that one might have with their body and with food, um, that would be considered an eating disorder and would include a set of symptoms that we as mental health professionals have defined that kind of capture the kinds of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that go along with different eating disorders. Um, The most common ones that you'll hear about are anorexia nervosa, um, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. Um, there are a couple of less common ones that you'll hear about more frequently these days, including orthorexia and diabulimia. Um, and you know, the latter two, um, orthorexia, really focuses on kind of cutting out entire food groups from one's diet, um, and diabulimia relates to the um, decision to not manage. Um, symptoms of diabetes in order to achieve weight loss.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: but, but to go back to the first two that I mentioned, actually the first three I mentioned, which are the most common, um, anorexia nervosa is um, really a pattern of very restrictive eating um, with often compulsive exercise. Combined with um, disturbances in terms of body image and often feelings about one's body and in one's relationship with food, uh, and those things typically result in significant weight loss. Uh, bulimia nervosa um, also involves a disturbed relationship with one's body and one's um, and with food, but um, involves binging and purging. So binging typically meaning that you consume larger than would be typical amounts of food, and then purging, which is finding ways to compensate for that, um, either vomiting or compulsive exercise or um, the abuse of laxatives. So um, bulimia nervosa represents that kind of binging and purging type of behavior. And then binge eating disorder includes the binge eating and as well as the unhealthy relationship with food in your body, um, but without the purging behaviors.
0: Okay. Um, Is orthorexia also it's um, sort of these obsessions with health and um, healthy eating and... Uh, fear of food. It can it, be. Yeah. It can be.
1: Um, you know, I think that what really becomes feared um, is is weight gain, um, and that becomes associated with a particular food group. So, I I think in this day and age, um, we see a lot of people who have become really preoccupied with not eating carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Um, or sugars, and having an intense fear that if they do eat carbohydrates or sugar, um, they will gain weight. And so controlling that particular food group um, becomes, you know, becomes the focus of the Mm -hmm. eating disorder. But interestingly, back when I was dancing, um, the fear was of fat. Right.
0: Yeah, we (laughs) ate, do you remember all the candy we ate, all the gummy bears?
1: (laughs) yep. The fear was, you know, it, you ever, if, as long as it was low-fat or fat-free, the mentality was you could eat as much um, as you wanted of that. And it just goes to show these kind of wild swings in terms of how we judge the food we're eating and, and the messages we get out uh, over around what's okay and what's not okay.
0: Absolutely. We're going to be talking um, for Eating Disorder Awareness Week to a few different professionals. Um, a nutritionist will be talking about some of the... When you talk about the spectrum some of the behaviors and um, mindsets that fall sort of in the middle range and yep. maybe don't qualify as eating disorders but are maybe not healthy relationships to food and then we're also speaking to another nutritionist about um, media literacy and how to sort of look at all the vast information that comes to us through so many different platforms and take a bit of a critical eye so both um, of those are relevant to things that you've said. Um, So we're talking just from that you can tell we're going to be talking to a few different types of professionals who work with people who have disordered eating. Um, You're a psychologist and why do you think that it's important to talk uh, first and foremost perhaps in this conversation about eating disorders with you, a psychologist?
1: Well, um, you know, what I often tell people who I work with is that if treating eating disorders only involved telling someone what they should eat, (laughs) um, they would probably be a lot easier to treat. Unfortunately, that is not the case that, um, you know, some of the most key components of eating disorders involve how we think about our bodies and food and how we feel about our bodies and food. And actually can be um, also uh, associated with thoughts and feelings we have about all kinds of other things in our lives. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my role as a mental health professional is to help people understand um, those thoughts and feelings and, and then begin to develop more flexibility about the kind of behaviors they engage in in response to what might be um, some emotional concerns or some um, inflexible kind of ways of thinking about food, weight, and their bodies. So, you know, therapy is certainly um, a really integral part of treating eating disorders, but also in terms of kind of less significant disordered eating um, it's really hard to begin to make changes without understanding the thoughts and feelings that are contributing to the behaviors.
0: What, kind, what are some examples of those thoughts and feelings that might be underlying an eating disorder?
1: Um, well, you know, you'll find that people who are struggling with an eating disorder um, think about food, their body, and their weight almost all the time. Mm. Um, It becomes an obsession that takes over their life. And and actually, they often will spend more time focusing energy on those thoughts and those behaviors than they will other things in their lives that might be really important to them and may have been really important to them before the eating disorder took over. Um, So, you know, those kinds of intense um, and very overwhelming thoughts and feelings are going to be some of the first ones that we're going to try to look at. Um, but also, there may be other things going on, as I mentioned earlier, on an emotional level or other things that people are struggling with. Um, and there are ways in which the eating disorder can also serve to help distract them or help them maintain a sense of control over other emotions that are that are that they're experiencing as painful or problematic in their lives.
0: Mm-hmm. I feel like I this is my non-professional just anecdotal experience that sometimes it even looks like suicidal th- thoughts is there any like relationship between suicidal ideology and eating disorders like this slow yeah unwillingness to take care of yourself or give your sure. body what it needs to survive
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness wow. or any mental illness diagnosis. And, you know, for someone who treats eating disorders, it can often look like watching a person slowly over time um, do things that that end their lives. Yeah. And um and so. You know, I think that, again, given the the mortality rate and how deadly eating disorders can be, um, you know, there are certain overlaps um, and ways in which when you're watching someone struggle with an an eating disorder, it can, you know, to the observer, appear that they're engaging in really suicidal behavior.
0: Yeah, that's a really sobering uh, statistic you just offered. Yeah, yeah. You you started um, a moment ago talking about if if all it was, was a matter of telling people what to eat, then eating disorders will be easier to treat. Yeah. (laughs) Um, How difficult are eating disorders to treat and manage?
1: Well, I would say that um, they require very specialized care. Mm -hmm. And part of that's because it Eating disorder treatment best occurs in the context of a multidisciplinary team <laughs> where you have medical professionals who are monitoring how stable people are medically you have mental health professionals who are helping them learn new ways of coping with these thoughts and feelings and and the behaviors that are associated with those thoughts and feelings and then you have nutritionists and dietitians who are helping people relearn how to eat and how to have a, you know, a relationship with food that will nourish and sustain their body. So, you know, they are certainly difficult to treat. um, And I think more importantly require specialized care from people who have, um, you know, who have resources that can help address the many different levels of need um, that you find in an eating
0: disorder patient. Um, And besides the extreme of morbidity, what are the other risks and dangers associated with eating disorders?
1: Um, Well, I mean, there are also kind of what we call comorbid mood disorders that are common. And what I mean by that is that people who are struggling with eating disorders often also struggle with um, depression and anxiety. Um, Sometimes you can see kind of obsessive compulsive behaviors, along with the eating disorder behavior, Um, and then all kinds of difficulties in that individual's life. It could be not doing well in school, it could be losing relationships that are important to them, um, or it could be not being able to achieve important goals because so much of their energy and time is being devoted to the relationship with the eating disorder.
0: And it's also... um challenging to treat because deception and whether it's self-deception or deception for others is sort of part of the disease. Is that right?
1: Eating disorder patients often feel a tremendous amount of shame. Mm -hmm. And so they, they will often devote a lot of time and energy to hiding their behaviors because you know, first of all, they do feel that shame, but also I think there's also a fear of losing control mm-hmm. and that if other people know what's going on and know how distorted and dysfunctional their relationship with food and their bodies has become. They'll
0: try and um, take over. They
1: might, yep, they might try and take over and um, and that can be really terrifying for someone struggling with an eating disorder. The thought of that can be terrifying. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, getting more specifically into... Um the dance population, I think there's um, an assumption that dancers are vulnerable to eating disorders and that that can be true to some degree. The prevalence of mirrors and tight-fitting clothing and being lifted by others have all been shown to um, enhance the risk of eating disorders. But what what are the numbers? Are dancers more vulnerable to eating disorders than the general um, similar population outside of dance?
1: Unfortunately, the the data suggests that they are much more vulnerable to eating disorders. In a, you know, in a typical adolescent population, you know, most of the data suggests that about three to four percent will develop an eating disorder. Um, In a population of dancers, that jumps to between 12 and 18 percent with um, the 18 percent Numbers really emerging in dancers who are uh, classical ballet dancers um, and and lower rates of eating disorders, um, more typical of dancers training in other disciplines. Mm
0: -hmm. And that sort of suggests, if if we look at this in a nature-nurture binary, as we sometimes do in medicine or psychology, that suggests that the environment and the nurturing elements have a big impact. Part to do with somebody's likelihood to develop an eating disorder. But it, there must be a nature component as well. Are certain people genetically more likely to develop eating disorders?
1: Sure. I mean, we, we do believe that there is a genetic component. Um, and even if, if that isn't part of what's contributing, um, we know that having a family member who is you know, actively engaging in eating disorder really increases risk of, the, um, you know, of another family member also developing eating disordered behaviors. Um, and then we know that there are certain temperamental traits that can be associated with, um, with eating disorders. So, you know, personality traits and, and kind of ways of engaging with the world and interacting with the world that can uh, mean that someone is more vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are definitely individual traits that the data indicates would put someone at an increased risk for developing an eating disorder.
0: And I would m- imagine those to be things like perfectionism or anxiety mm-hmm. or all things yep. that again, dancers are sort of um, predisposed to either through selection or, or nurture, who knows, but um, those marks tend to be high among dancers as well.
1: Exactly. Yep, exactly.
0: Um, And you mentioned just now that if someone in the family has an eating disorder, that makes you more susceptible. Is that true of other, um, say, employees or colleagues or friends or um, classmates? If there's a dancer in the studio with um, a visible eating disorder, either through behavior or or the look of their body, does that make other students more vulnerable to developing an eating disorder?
1: It can. I mean, there can be a, a kind of a learning process, both in mm-hmm. terms of, um, you know, seeing other people engage in certain kinds of behaviors and and then other people kind of copying or imitating those behaviors. And really, the, the greatest risk of that is when the eating disordered individual is getting a lot of positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. or praise, mm-hmm. And there's that kind of what we would call social learning that goes on that you know, seeing another dancer who is maybe getting more roles than she used to or being promoted um, or just getting a lot of praise in the classroom based on weight loss or that, you know, other people are attributing to that weight loss, um, that that can certainly uh, trigger similar kinds of of behaviors in other dancers who really are, are seeing that as a means to getting ahead or being recognized, um, in the, in the dance world.
0: Yeah. And that, that can be so complicated from the teacher's perspective because sometimes, um, we have the bad situation where the student really is getting a lot of praise for being thin just for being, you know, and that's, it's not, that's not great teaching. Um, but sometimes that, that student while they're developing these disordered behaviors they're also increasing their intensity and their passion and their commitment to dance Mm -hmm. and it can all kind of go hand in hand and so the teacher it's conflicting because um, on one hand a teacher might even know not to praise that that thinness but it's hard because the student is also just showing so much focus and passion and devotion and improving so much in their skills simultaneous um, maybe they're developing some obsessive behaviors you know yeah. that are borderline or so it's not easy i think for it's for not teachers. easy
1: <laughs> and i think you know this is one of the the areas in which helping teachers to look at the whole dancer and not only how that dancer is functioning in the studio or on the stage but also how that dancer is functioning in his or her life um, because you know, usually when when people become really narrowly focused and rigid, um, it may it may be you know um, associated with positive outcomes in one context, mm-hmm. but you'll often begin to see other things deteriorating as a result of that rigidity and that kind of overinvestment in one part of that person's life or identity. So. You know, that's an area in which I, I really encourage teachers to look outside the studio um, and, and potentially ask questions or engage in conversations about how um, how that dancer's doing in other contexts of her life that are important to her.
0: Right, like saying things like, your dancing is looking so... so- Impassioned right now, but I notice you're having a hard time connecting with your classmates lately. Might be an example, you know, it seems yep, that can yep. be very de socializing. So um, it, it's a hard topic too, to broach, I think, from a, a teacher's perspective. Any other, um, following up on that, any other specifics that you can offer in terms of how a teacher might do that or broach the, the conversation with a dancer?
1: You know, I think that. Um, I generally try to encourage teachers not to focus on weight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To the extent that they can avoid engaging in these conversations, sometimes it is much better for them to, you know, if they have a concern, to allow a qualified professional to engage in that conversation, whether it's a nutritionist, whether it is a psychologist. Um, but to really, you know, know how deeply sensitive these issues are and rather than kind of wading in and hoping for a good outcome, knowing that the potential for damage is actually quite high, um, really offering to connect a dancer with, um, with a professional who can be much more mindful of the potential impact of that conversation.
0: I've been surprised how many Teachers still today want to talk about students' weight, weight and then don't even have a resource to offer them. They don't even have a nutritionist or a psychologist or anyone that they can even offer them to help with their weight if it were a legitimate issue. Right. Shocking. Um, right. You know, I think it's it's always hard in dance because there is this desire for thinness. And even, even if not thinness um, – an idea of being really body aware and um, conscientious of how your body functions and what you're putting in it. So, and then you've described that dancers are at higher risk for eating disorders. So how can a dancer, how can a dancer know if they've crossed over the line and have shifted from sort of manageable relationships to food um, into the more risky ones?
1: Well, you know, I I'd say that one of the yardsticks that I use in terms of the impact um, it's having and also kind of how risky any set of, you know, dieting behaviors are um, is really focused on, first of all, how rigid the behavior is. For Mm -hmm. instance, when people begin to notice that they have to do things a certain way, they have to eat a certain number of calories, they have to, you know... um, eat in a certain place or can never eat with certain people or whatever, those very kind of rigid approaches to eating, those are almost always going to be red flags that you've moved into more dangerous territory in terms of your risk of an eating disorder. Um, And then the other thing that I really think carefully about is the extent to which the behaviors are impacting that person's ability to function in different areas of their lives. So when it begins to impact their ability to function at school or in relationships with friends and family members, um, or certainly in the studio, you know, often you'll find that dancers who are, who are dieting excessively or engaging in eating disorder behaviors will get weaker, um, will not have the energy that they once did, um, maybe more prone to injury or illness. Mm-hmm. And, um, so you'll also then see the impact in the studio, but, um, really kind of broadly, I'm looking for the rigidity of the kinds of thoughts and behaviors that are showing up and then the impact of those thoughts and behaviors on the individual's ability to function.
0: Are people um, apt to notice those behaviors in themselves and seek help? Or how does that process usually go?
1: Well, it's, it's a good question and probably a hard one to answer because especially when we're talking about ballet dancers, there's so much, re- often so much reinforcement in the environment for engaging in the behaviors. And so, you know, often for a while, the behaviors make the person feel really good in terms of um, getting the positive feedback, maybe liking what they see in the mirror. Uh, feeling control
0: maybe, of their body. And, exactly.
1: You know. Exactly. So, you know, when when it feels like things are working out well for you and you're benefiting from the behaviors, it can be really difficult to recognize the negative impact that they may be having um, on your health or on other areas of your life. And, and usually it will take a more noticeable change, like when um, female dancers stop having their periods or when other people around begin to notice the rigid behavior or the um, the weight loss it often will take an outside, um, kind of perspective before people will realize the extent to which these behaviors have taken control of their lives.
0: And is that a successful approach? I've always heard it's, you know, similar to something like alcoholism. Um, it's hard to make the chain. It's hard to inspire someone to make a change from the outside. Um, so if these behaviors are noticed by friends or colleagues or, um, teachers or or directors. Yeah. Is is it usually effective to address excessive weight loss or unhealthy behaviors? What should people do?
1: Well, I will say that you most definitely do not want to ignore them. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, that assuming that someone else is having those conversations or assuming, you know, that that the person is aware of of the facts that They may be in a very dangerous or risky situation um, is not an approach that I would recommend. But I I think you're absolutely right in that you have to be very careful in how you address these kinds of um, conversations because, you know, that you really ideally want to put them in contact with a professional Who's trained to have these kinds of conversations and to help people recognize um, the impact that their behaviors are having on on their lives, on their health, and on their ability to function?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you would, we we've talked a lot about women, um, and that is a specialty of yours. But eating disorders also happen in men in the dance community, in particular. Mm-hmm. Anything mm-hmm. you want to mention about that or that or those? Um, unusual cases or do they function differently?
1: Well, one of the challenges um, for men with eating disorders is that there's often a lot of shame Mm -hmm. because, you know, eating disorders have historically been thought of as kind of, quote unquote, a women's issue. Um, For men who struggle with those symptoms, um, there can be that added layer of you know, again, a lack of recognition or awareness of the impact of eating disorders on men um, and increased shame around what it means to be a man who um, is struggling with an eating disorder. So, you know, I think that that um, can be a barrier in terms of, of acknowledging that there's a problem and then actively seeking treatment. But certainly in men who are in kind of very body conscious, weight conscious Um, professions or training environments, you you see that quite frequently. The most common one that that I see is actually in men who are wrestlers Mm -hmm. and whose um, performance is very much tied to their ability to um, attain and maintain a a particular weight.
0: And that gets also into the interesting issues of eating disorders that don't necessarily incorporate body dysmorphia, which Mm -hmm. we also associate so strongly but don't necessarily have to go with eating disorders. Um, right. So in, in closing, sort of looking at how to deal with these things, I guess firstly I would say um, where, if a dancer feels like they're developing unhealthy habits, um, who should they contact? And also what can they expect from treatment?
1: Well, I always encourage people to identify, you know, an adult, a friend, Um, you know, uh, someone in their community with whom they feel safe, with whom they feel comfortable bringing this information and that they trust that that person is going to respond in a caring and empathic way. So, you know, if ideally, if it's someone who is still living at home with their parents and they can talk to their parents or parents about this, um, you know, the parents often play a really pivotal role in terms of connecting, um, young people with treatments. But outside of that context, you know, telling a friend, telling a teacher, or even just going and talking to your primary care provider, um, can be a way of getting connected to the resources that are available. Um, and you know, most medical doctors are, are fairly familiar with eating disorders and will have, um, people within their either organization or their community who they can refer to for treatment. Um, In terms of what treatment looks like, it really depends on the severity of the eating disorder. Um, For the most severe eating disorders where an individual's physical health has been really compromised, there's typically a period of medical stabilization that is required. Um, Sometimes that occurs in an inpatient setting where a patient has to be hospitalized. Other times it's in an out, patient or partial hospitalization program. Um, and so, you know, when when we actually feel that there is acute or significant risk to that dancer's um, health, then that's going to be the first priority is getting them back um, to a medically stable place. Um, for people who potentially have, you know, are really struggling with, with their weight and um, with dieting behaviors, but medically are stable, then, you know, outpatient treatment is the most common care that is provided. Um, and that can look like meeting with a therapist, usually on a weekly basis. Um, it might also mean checking in with a nutritionist or dietitian on a regular basis. Um, and then, you know, all we, we always try to keep a medical doctor or um, other medical provider involved just to monitor um, that person's physical health and make sure it's not being compromised by any of the eating disordered behaviors.
0: And I assume there's also then a strategy for long-term management, right? Because these are in that category of illnesses that really don't ever go completely away. Is that true still? That...
1: Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I was actually talking to a colleague about this the other day, um, you know, it is actually possible for the behaviors to go away Mm -hmm. and diagnosing an eating disorder really requires the person to be actively engaging in the behaviors. Mm -hmm. That being said, um, you know, eating disordered thoughts, you know, those kinds of dysfunctional thoughts about food or about your body, you know, those may not go away. They may actually, um, you know, all but you know, all but go away. They be- can become actually relatively unproblematic. Um, but the question really becomes: Are you know are people continuing to get engage in eating disordered behaviors in response to those thoughts, mm-hmm. or are they able to respond to those thoughts in a healthier and more flexible way? Mm-hmm. So, um, I believe that eating disordered behaviors certainly can be treated and can go away. Um, and the thoughts, you know, it's really helping people to identify those thoughts when they show up for them and ideally respond to them more flexibly and more compassionately.
0: And actually, there's a lot of other even physical ailments that are similar where like, you know, what's the number one risk for ankle sprain? Having a previous ankle sprain. <laughs> you know, right. It doesn't mean, right. It doesn't mean that your ankle is sprained in between, you know. but. Yeah, that's true with a lot of things that once you've had something, you might, there might be the risk, you might have an increased risk of having that thing again, um, right. but we can still, we don't have to look at it as an eternal um, right destiny.
1: Well, and hopefully what you do is you learn to relate to the needs of your body mm-hmm. in a more compassionate way where you understand that this may be an area of vulnerability for you, Um, And you you learn different ways of responding so that, again, you can potentially, you know, avoid some of these more rigid and damaging behaviors and instead really focus on providing the kind of care to your body that it needs and that are going to allow you to maintain a healthy balance.
0: Right. Like, again, like physical injury, where we hope that you come out of that physical injury with increased toolkit, that you have a a better ability to yeah, recognize the warning signs and strengthen and manage and take care of yourself.
1: Exactly. And that's why therapy is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's what therapy is about, is really helping people to develop that toolkit that will, you know, serve them even during times when those eating disordered thoughts or other painful feelings or thoughts emerge for them. So therapy is a great place to learn those kinds of skills.
0: Um, so lastly, is there anything, we talked a little bit about, um, some of the things that you would like to see in the dance world, you know, teachers not talking to dancers about their weight, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) stuff like that. Are there other things that you think as a community of dance, um, we should do to protect people from eating Mm -hmm. disorders?
1: Well, I mean, I think I've been a, a very vocal advocate of, um, this idea of broadening our definition of the successful outcome of dance training, mm-hmm. and I know I touched on this before, um, and it's it's something that I just I really believe in. That when we maintain a narrow, rigid view of success, we tend to promote narrow and rigid behaviors in service of achieving success. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we help people recognize that this training can be a springboard to all kinds of very meaningful fulfilling and successful outcomes, whether that's a professional career or something very different, um, it typically allows people a little more flexibility and a little more of a sense of being able to um, have, have the ability to identify where their skill, their body, their interests are going to be best expressed rather than trying to fit their skill, their body, and their interests into this narrow definition that has been created of, of who and
0: what they should be. That's great. I really appreciate that. Um, that's all that I have, um, at this time. Is there anything else that you want to say?
1: No, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, I really appreciate that you're doing this work. It's so important. And I'm looking forward to hearing what the other, uh, other people involved in, in these conversations have to say.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, El- Elizabeth. It's just always such a pleasure to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Thanks. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dance well Podcast. Like what you hear? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search DanceWell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about our podcast by visiting www.dancewellpodcast.com. We wouldn't be where we are without generous contributions from our listeners. Your contributions help pay for our SoundCloud membership website fees and upgrades and our recording technology. If you would like to make a contribution to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.